Our text today comes from Exodus chapter 18. Hear God's holy word. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that Yahweh had brought Israel out of Egypt. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you, and you are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all the people will also go to their place in peace. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for setting proper authority in the earth that you have given us uh, opportunities to take dominion and to rule, but also to be accountable to and submit to those who rule uh, with godly authority. So Father, we pray that we would hear these things and that we would probably assess them, that you would give us your spirit to guide us into truth today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Communes always fail. When you study the history of this country, you'll find every so often there will be these little communal experiments, these communities that pop up here and there, these places that exist to show the world just how society ought to be run. They often begin with the idea that humans should be able to live without money, without formal government, without rigid societal structures, without private property ownership, and that everyone should just do what they're good at and share goods and resources. So if you have dairy cows and I know how to grow carrots, will you just milk your cows and I'll grow my carrots and when I need milk, I'll bring you a basket of carrots and you'll bring me a jug of milk and that's how we'll get along. We'll just trade uh, what we have and the guy who makes shoes uh, can get paid in potatoes and, and we'll all just uh, work this out this way. Nobody's in charge. We make our decisions collectively. We all work together to build up this utopia, this little slice of heaven on earth where no one is in charge. But it never works. The original Plymouth colony founded by the pilgrims was one such experimental commune. And these Puritans who are renowned for their industry, they have this reputation for virtue and their work ethic. When you place them in a commune, they became lazy and unproductive. 
resources were wasted. Fields lay untilled and unplanted. Vegetables rotted on the ground. People starved. Half the colony died within the first two years. That famous Thanksgiving that we all know about, that came only after they decided to divide all the property up into parcels that every family was individually responsible for cultivating. And that is what brought prosperity. In in the first half of the 1800s, there was another explosion of utopian social theorizing. And something like 130 official communes were established around the principles of common property, collective work, communal childcare, like the famous Oneida community in the state of New York, which featured uh, all of that, plus communal marriages. There were no marriages in this, in this colony or this uh, commune. Uh, everyone was married to everyone else. They didn't have any formalized governmental structure, only these general meetings of the community where everyone was welcome to publicly air all their grievances. Well, this Oneida community only lasted about 30 years and it never grew to any more than 300 people. And then it uh, went out of existence. The 1970s saw another resurgence again of these attempts at communist utopias, most of them in Vermont. You know, the rest were in New England, but most of them were in the Northeast. This time with the innovative feature of psychedelic drugs. So that resulted in even more non-productivity and more disorder. Why do communes fail? The simple answer is is the basic human propensity toward laziness. If the expectation is that I'm gonna be provided for no matter what, then why should I work? Why should I try? People slack off, they get lazy, and then the productive people, the hardworking people, quickly get tired of working for someone who won't work. Add to that the fact that the sort of people who imagine idealistic societies rarely have the practical skills needed to make that a reality. Uh, One commune in Texas in 1855 attracted all kinds of artists and lawyers and musicians and journalists, but fewer than 10 farmers. And the project collapsed after 18 months, as one writer put it, it collapsed amid homesickness, bickering, and a distinct lack of homegrown produce. (laughs) They found out that you can't eat poetry. I found out the hard way that you can't eat Impressionist paintings. And ultimately, communes fail because without rule, without organization, without orderly governance, there's no discipline. And there are no consequences when someone does not do their part. No one has the authority to govern, and there's no mechanism for dealing with disputes. There's no mechanism for handling offenses. Communes always fail because they're an outright denial of the indelible truth that all of life is hierarchical. Our creator has created man in such a way that he is designed for rule. Man's first duty is to rule himself, to govern himself, to be king over his life. And then as he is faithful and as he matures, he is granted more and more rule, more responsibility. God mediates his blessings through faithful rulers. And God has established in the earth spheres of human authority. He has given us the family, which is an authority. He's given us the state, which is an authority. 
He's given us the church, which has authority. The state is not the only authority between heaven and earth. God has established other authorities whose boundaries and jurisdictions must be respected. And he sets heads over those spheres who submit to him and all in various ways submit to each other. The head of all things is Christ. God has concentrated all rule in heaven and on earth in King Jesus. Jesus is the man who has been crowned with all authority. And so all human rule is derived authority. All human rule comes from Christ's authority. It is delegated by Christ. It's granted by Jesus, which means that all men everywhere must submit to the rule of Jesus and all men everywhere must also submit to other proper human authorities. Every man everywhere must submit himself to some other authority. Um, this is the way it works in the Trinity. In, in the Godhead, with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they consistently, continually glorify the other members of the Godhead. They serve and love and obey the other members of the Godhead. Jesus is the God who obeys God. The Holy Spirit is the God who glorifies and serves and is sent by God. Uh, the, the members of the Trinity all serve and, and submit to and love each other. So it is in the spheres of human authority, there is mutual rule and submission. The church disciples the state and the family. The state protects the church and the family. The family gives its resources and strength to build up the church and the state. The state and the family submit to the spiritual instruction and the discipline of the church. The church and the family submit to the ordinances of the state. The church and the state strengthen and build up the family. So there are all these exchanges of mutual submission and authority so that the king may rule, but he must also submit to the discipleship of the church. And the church is protected by and covered by uh, the state. So there, there are all these mutual acts of submission and authority. All of life is hierarchical. Government is inescapable. We will either be governed by chaos or we will be governed by order. We will either be governed by mob or we'll be governed by duly elected and appointed representatives. We all have our place in the hierarchies that God has established in all of life. Every one of us has areas that we must rule over and we also are placed in relationships where we are called on to submit to the God-ordained rule of others. If you deny that, if you want to act like that's not the case, then what you have is disorder and confusion and societal collapse, and you have starvation and you have death, just like everywhere else it has ever been tried. Good government is an indescribable blessing. And while the topic of government may not be the most exciting subject you've ever studied, and maybe on a Sunday morning you may not be particularly interested to talk about or to think about uh, government, I can tell your socks are going up and down right now just to be talking about government. I can tell you're uh, on the edge of your seat. But every once in a while, we must remind ourselves of some of these principles lest we take them for granted or we be deceived by the errors of anarchists and communists and think, wow, they've got some pretty good ideas no, let's think about this critically and think about this biblically. 
Since the beginning of the year, we've been exploring several different subjects on Sunday mornings, asking, what do we believe about X? So we've said, what do we believe about God? What do we believe about the Bible, the gospel, the sacraments? Last week, Pastor Jones gave us this great view of the church and our life in the community of the church and our, our life in the body. For the next couple of weeks, we're gonna focus in on specific aspects of church life, and today we'll study what we believe about church government. In the text that I read uh, from Exodus just a few minutes ago, we heard about that occasion after the deliverance of Israel from the bondage in Egypt through the Red Sea, just before they get to Sinai, um, jo uh, Jethro, Moses' uh, father-in-law, comes and visits them, and he sees uh, Moses wearing himself out, attempting to personally attend to the needs of all the people of Israel to settle all of their disputes. Now, when you think of how many people came out of Egypt through the Red Sea, how many people are you thinking about? In your, in your mind's eye, you're thinking about 500, you think about 1,000, maybe 5,000. In your mind, how many people were there? You think a lot, like 15,000? When we get to the book of Numbers, we find out there were 600,000 men over the age of 20. Well, if there are 600,000 men, we can assume that there were probably also something like 600,000 women. We're up to 1.2 million people. And if, they, if, if those couples, men and women together, had two kids, each couple had two kids, you know they probably had more than that. But if they had two kids, we're up to 2.4 million people in the company of, of Israel. You have the population of a medium-sized Midwestern city well, parked out there in tents. And Moses is the sole governor of that whole body of people. Moses is the one mediating God's judgment and God's blessing and instruction in the statutes of God to all of these people. But in verse 15, this is what, this is what happens. Moses said to his father-in-law, the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and the other and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. And he was up all day and all night doing this very thing. And Jethro says, Moses, this is not good. This is not good for you. You're wearing yourself out. This is not good for Israel. This is not good for the people. You're wearing them out too. Surely there are things that are falling through the cracks. You're not able to answer all of their questions clearly or exercise clear judgment when this is all you're doing. Not only that, but there are other men who need to be exercising authority. There are other men equipped with the gifts of judgment and leadership who ought to be serving. So Jethro said, here's the solution. Establish a plurality of leadership. Some men are equipped to rule over tens, some over fifties, some over hundreds, and some over thousands. And, and if my math is right, when I look at, if there were 2.4 million people, and you have rulers of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, that puts something like 200, I'm sorry, 327,000 men in positions of leadership, in positions of government in Israel. What that means is rule is no longer concentrated in one man. Uh, rule is spread out among the tribes and among the men. This established an organized hierarchy. These men are called rulers of tens, 
rulers of fifties. The leader of tens would rule his ten. He would make decisions and he would render judgments and he would then, the leader of tens, would submit to the leader of fifties. And the leader of fifties would submit to the leader of hundreds. And there was a system of appeal where some hard case might make it all the way up to Moses. Verse uh, 22, this is what Jethro says, let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall, shall judge. So that uh, eventually if there was something that was just too big to handle, you would appeal up the, up the ranks of the courts until it got to Moses. The man who was a faithful ruler of tens would be a great candidate to take over as a ruler of fifties when his time came. And the ruler of thousands uh, obviously has more authority and influence than the ruler of tens. The ruler of thousands represents more people when the elders of the tribes gather. He's accountable for more people. He has greater responsibility than the ruler of tens. So we have this hierarchy of rule and we have this hierarchy of godly men. There were prerequisites for this office. Did you catch that? Uh, Jethro says, moreover, you shall select from all the people, not just anybody, don't just ask who's interested. No, select able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such of them to be rulers over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So there's this delegated authority up and down the organizational structure. And Jethro said to Moses, Moses, your job is to stand before God, before the people. You pray to God. You appeal before the people, uh, for the people before God. You bring your supplications and you represent the people before God. And then you represent God before the people. You teach the people God's laws and statutes. You show them the way that they must walk and how they must work. But you, you delegate this authority to judge to other men. There are other men who must be allowed to exercise wisdom and judgment. So before this, Moses was using up all of his time in this capacity as judge, and Jethro says, no, your primary calling is to commune with God in prayer and teach the people what God says. And then as you do that, your delegates will follow you in proper application of God's statutes and you'll be able to judge rightly. And by the way, their authority is real authority. If they judge on something, that's, that's what it is. So all of these features, everything we see here that Jethro recommends to Moses, and by the way, that's what they did. Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. So, so Moses actually put this into practice. All of these features, a plurality of leadership, with an orderly hierarchy, with the privilege of appeal, with delegated authority all up and down the organization, this was essential for Israel to become an orderly society. And when we get to the New Testament, we have these very same principles applied to the government of the church. Jesus called a plurality of apostles. He didn't call just one man to serve with him, not just one, but 12 men to govern the church after his ascension. And these apostles, as they went throughout the world, they established churches and appointed elders in every place. Elders, plural. The word elders in Greek is presbyteros. It's the word where we get presbytery from. Uh, a, a presbyter is an elder. That's all that it means. It's, it's, a, it's one who is, is operating or functioning as a ruler of the church. We see that very phrase show up in Acts, that they set up 
elders. They appointed elders in the churches. Paul told Titus, set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So churches were not to be mob ruled. They were not communes. Every church was to have a plurality of leadership. And we have to add, and we have to stress this uh, today, that um, it was always male leadership. All of these elders, all of these pastors that were established, all the apostles were, were men. Um, women, uh, that doesn't diminish the role of women in the church or the role of women in the family or, or in society. Women have an entire host of, of vital, glorious functions, things that women do that men are not equipped for. Um, things I, I frankly don't want to do. I mean, you do them better than we do, women, and, and you're, you're equipped and God has, has, has fashioned you in a way that it is your glory to do the things that God has called you to do. And by the way, in the scriptures, there are mothers and sons are to listen to and obey the voice of their mothers. There are queens in the Bible. There are prophetesses in the Bible, but there are no elderesses. There are no apostleses. Uh, there, there, are no, um, uh, there, there are no priestesses uh, in, in the Bible. God has ordained that in his church that uh, the eldership, that the minister be Male for a host of reasons, but one very simple reason is that the voice of the groom to the bride, when you are convened uh, for worship, when you're called together and the word is proclaimed, when I say that you're forgiven, when I call you to the table, when we when we uh, when we administer the sacraments, this is the voice of the groom to the bride, and it's important that that be a male voice. Um, I individually. I am part of the bride of Christ. And so my orientation as part of the body of Christ, um, my orientation to Christ is a part of the bride. I'm not individually the bride of Christ, but we are together collectively the bride of Christ. But when I function to call you to worship, to tell you that your sins are forgiven, when I function in a way to open the Bible and tell you what it says, when I call you to eat and drink with your Savior, when I do these things, I am functioning as an under-shepherd, I am speaking to you with the voice of the Savior. It's critical that that be a masculine voice. It's important that it be a male voice. Uh, it's a very simple uh, effect of, of male leadership in the church, which God has ordained. And, and it is a good thing, and it is a vital thing. So, um, all throughout the churches that were established in the New Testament, there was a plurality of male leadership. And then, Every church has its elders, and when issues came up that were too big for the local congregation, too big for elders to sort out, there was a process of appeal so that, that the broader assemblies of the church could figure things out. In Acts chapter 15, the church in Antioch had questions about how do we incorporate Gentiles into the church? There's a big dispute, a big debate. And so all of the elders of all of the churches get together in Jerusalem to sort through this. There in Acts 15, you have the first presbytery meeting, a pres uh, meeting of presbyters. And those elders that met there had real authority. They had real responsibility and oversight of the churches they served. These are all the words that are used. And Peter, uh, 1 Peter 5, 2, Peter says to elders, he says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. In the old King James, I think that word's bishop, the word bishop and overseers, um, uh, is interchangeable, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. 
In Hebrews 13, 7, Christians are exhorted to obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. The elders are not these ceremonial figureheads. They're not these empty suits. They have real spiritual authority as far as the New Testament is concerned. And the Bible says, we must give account. Understand that I take this extremely seriously. This is, this is a fearful thing for me to consider that I am going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for how I ministered to you with the word and with the sacraments. I'm gonna to have to give an account for how I counseled you and how I discipled you and how I led you. So you understand that when I tell you something, this is not coming, I'm not being frivolous. I'm not, this is not off the cuff. Um, when when I, I take this so seriously because I don't wanna stand before Jesus and not have an answer for how I did my job as far as you are concerned. And so understand when I or an elder, when we have to correct or admonish, understand where that's coming from. That's coming from a place of love for you and a deep concern for your growth in maturity and for your perseverance in the faith because we have to give an answer for you and we have to give an answer for how we, well, we did our job. And so this is, this is not something we take lightly. This is something we take soberly and, and, and with, with great, great holy fear because of this. The Lord Jesus has invested his church with real authority and has established a government within her so that the church may have blessing and peace. Just as Moses and Israel were wearing themselves out and they were frustrated by a lack of formal government, so the church's growth and effectiveness would be stifled by a lack of any structure or leadership or organization. The church must have orderly governance. I think the common assumption is the opposite of this. You, you get this idea from many evangelicals that the church really doesn't need any kind of formal human governance. I mean, what do we need? We got the guitar guy, we got the drummer guy, and we got the girl with the microphone who sings, and we got the guy with the um, Hawaiian shirt who, who shares a word with us with the uh, a PowerPoint. What else do you need? What else? What do you, human authority is inevitably corrupt, right? Human authority always leads to tearing and all kinds of abuses. Christians ought to just be able to get together and work things out as they come. And every Christian is just as wise as the next and just as gifted as the next. So, so there's not to be any kind of hierarchical structures in the church. That's the assumption. And while that may sound super optimistic and really spiritual, the reality is there's going to have to be somebody who decides who is leading worship, who is preaching. What do we expect of the person who is preaching? Are there any doctrinal standards that we have? Who administers the sacraments? How do they administer the sacraments? How do we reconcile differences and sort through offenses and disputes? When do we meet? Where do we meet? What do we do when we get together? There are all kinds of practical questions that need answering. And even if, if you don't have any kind of formal ordination, or recognize leadership, what you get is de facto leadership. What you get is typically you leave yourself vulnerable to the power hungry. You leave yourself open to the bully, those who love preeminence, whether they actually have any gifts to lead. Um, and and that's, what you, that's what you open yourself up to. So it's clear that the Lord Jesus, through his earthly ministry and through his word, has established government in every sphere of human life, including 
the church. And we're convinced in this congregation that of all the forms of church government available in the broader church today, that the Presbyterian form of government, what do we mean by Presbyterian? We mean rule by a plurality of elders. That's what the presbyteros, the presbyter, that's, that's the foundation of the word Presbyterian, that that best reflects the key principles that we find in the Bible. And so quickly, I want to give you five propositions, five statements, a way that we answer the question, what do we believe about church government? Um, number one, we believe that Jesus is the head of the church. You might think that goes without saying, but it's critical that we all remember this, that the church is actively ruled by Jesus himself. We see this in Jesus' instruction and his corrections to the churches in the first chapters of Revelation. When you, when you read the beginning of the book of Revelation, you see Jesus actively, powerfully engaged in blessing and disciplining those churches, encouraging where they're faithful, admonishing them where they're not faithful. Um, uh, we, we don't have another single head of the church apart from Christ. Ephesians 5.23 says Christ is the head of the church. It couldn't be any more plain than that. Uh, Christ is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18 says he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Christ and Christ alone rules at the head of the church for his own glory. And this ought to give you great comfort and great peace and rest that while things fall through the cracks because the human leaders of the church are not omniscient and they're not omnipresent, oh, that we have uh, uh, cracks and failures in human judgment, Jesus rules his church and nothing gets by him and he sees all and he is actively working to preserve and build up his church. Rest in that and have peace in that. Number two, under the headship of Christ, the officers of the church have been delegated real authority for the discipleship of people in the gospel and for the protection against false and destructive teaching. The church has been granted authority by Christ to lead the world in the way of salvation, to warn the world about the judgment to come, to maintain a faithful communion of saints. Jesus gave his apostles the keys of the kingdom. And he said to his apostles, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So the church and her elders have the authority to admit people to fellowship in the body of Christ through the water of baptism, through the bread and wine at the Lord's table, and also to dismiss people from the body of Christ when either by their behavior or their beliefs, they're not submitting. They're obviously not submitting to the Lord Jesus. We'll talk more about church discipline next week, but understand this is real authority that Jesus has given his church. In the Reformed tradition, we say that the church's authority is ministerial and declarative. That is, the church has not been given the sword that belongs to the state. The church has not been given the rod of discipline that belongs to the family. So the church doesn't execute criminals, and we don't beat rebellious sons. We have been given the keys, which means we admit people to communion with Christ and we excommunicate people from communion with Christ, those are the limits of our authority. We administer the sacraments, we serve people 
in the name of Jesus, we boldly declare the gospel. We call men to repent and serve and obey the Lord Jesus. We disciple them. We show them what it means to follow Jesus. But we do not have the authority to execute judgment in other spheres of human life. We are very careful, and I appreciate our elders so much because we, uh, these men are so careful not to assume authority that is not ours. We exercise the authority that's been given to us and are not ashamed to do that. But we are also not eager to take on authority that is not ours. And a failure to understand the proper bounds of authority has been one of our society's biggest problems over the last few years. We have failed to acknowledge that all human authority has limits. And, and not every authority is given uh, all the rights and privileges of all the other authorities. So, for example, the state is not your family doctor. And the state has no, no role in making medical decisions for your family. The state also really has no business telling you what kind of light bulbs you can buy or how much water your toilet can flush, but they want to do that anyway. That's not, their, that's not in their jurisdiction. Likewise, fathers can't baptize. Fathers can't administer communion. Why? Because the sacraments weren't given to the family. The church can't spank your kids. Uh, if you know, Bring them to us. We we're not going to do it. I mean, it's, that's yours. He's yours to handle, um, to, to spank. Um, well, the church, cert I'm sorry, the state certainly has an interest in education. The state is not over education. The state has no jurisdiction over how you can choose to educate your children. Just for, just for example, if, you're, if your mailman told you you needed to buy an electric car, you'd laugh at him, right? If, if, if one of our county commissioners uh, was going door to door telling people they've got to eat more fiber, you'd tell them to get lost. What are you talking about? Mind your own business. You may have a role in government, but you're overstepping your jurisdiction. You're out of bounds. You're taking on authority that is not yours to take. In Jude's little epistle in the New Testament, Jude, that little book, Jude talks about the fallen angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode. And as a result, Jude says, they're going to be bound by everlasting chains under darkness in judgment. Attempting to rule outside of the jurisdictional bounds that God has established was Satan's great sin. He sought to exalt himself above and beyond what God gave him. And in uh, the gospel reading that John read this morning, uh, Satan offers Jesus things that aren't his to give. He, he offers things that aren't his to grant. And so he is judged. Taking authority that is not yours to take is satanic. That's Satan's play. That's not something we're going to be part of. All proper authority must understand its limits and its role. I know this gets real frustrating sometimes. You see problems and you think the church needs to do something about that. The church needs to handle that guy. This guy's being a knucklehead and he needs correction. Well, if we find out he needs correction, we do. We do that and we'll keep doing that. But remember, our authority is ministerial and declarative. So we will minister and we will declare. We will firmly correct sin. And as long as he receives the correction and as long as he repents and he'll work with us, we'll exercise forbearance and we'll exercise patience. But if he decides he's not going to submit anymore, all we can do is excommunicate him. But we can't hit him in the head with a two by four. I know that's what you want sometimes, but that's not what we're going to do. We don't have a church jail to put him in. God hasn't given us one of those. We don't have one. We can't make him obey. So it's critical that we all keep this in mind, uh, the form and function of church authority. What does it look like? 
Moving quickly, number three, God has given the church specific offices um, for the leadership of the body and for the work of the ministry. In the New Testament, we find the qualifications and the functions of three offices. We have deacons, we have elders, and we have elders who labor in the word and doctrine. We have three offices. Uh, the ones who labor in word and doctrine, we call pastors or, or ministers. So, so we commonly say there are two kinds of elders. There are elders who rule, ruling elders, and teaching elders. What, what role do these officers serve? Deacons are called to minister to the physical needs of the congregation. They care for the orphan, the widow. They care for the poor. They care for the physical plant, the physical campus of the church um, in, our, in our tradition. Uh, ruling elders, that next office, ruling elders are called to minister to the spiritual needs of the congregation, leading in areas of worship and teaching and discipleship and counsel. Teaching elders are specifically tasked with the public preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, in addition to all the other tasks of eldership. So just to give you more terminology that you'll hear from time to time, because I know not everybody grew up Presbyterian, not everybody grew up in the same tradition, so here's some words that you'll hear us use. The deacons serve on the diaconate. The ruling and the teaching elders serve together on the session. When the deacons and elders are together, which we do a few times a year, the deacons and elders get together, we call that the consistory. When the elders of the churches in a region all get together, that's called the presbytery. What does the presbytery do? Well, the presbytery is concerned with the examination and ordination of ministerial candidates. The presbytery admits new churches to the presbytery after examining them. Uh, the presbytery organizes church planting and missions efforts. Uh, the presbytery has a function of overall advising the local churches on doctrines, uh, on matters of doctrine and practicalities. And the presbytery is also a court of appeal for the churches. So if there's a judicial matter, that you don't think uh, is being handled correctly, you don't think it's being handled according to the Bible or in compliance with our Constitution, you can appeal that to the presbytery. That, again, ought to give you a lot of comfort, that we're not just out here on our own doing our own thing. That's how you get bullies. That's how you get all kinds of abuses. No, we are accountable to a larger body. We submit to the presbytery, and the presbytery, in our denomination, sends delegates up to the Council. So um, we have a council that meets once every three years where two delegates of every presbytery meet. So in this case, you have this process of appeal of, of courts, just as Moses and Jethro established in Israel. We have the congregation that is presided over by elders. Uh, the the, the uh, presbytery is a group of all the elders of all the churches. And then we have a council over that. So if there's a case that's too hard to handle, um, in, in the local congregation, we have these various courts of appeal, just as is established in Exodus and, and in the New Testament. Number four, the members of the congregation elect their representatives. You nominate and you elect the men you want serving you as deacons and elders. This is by biblical principle a precedent as well. New Testament officers are chosen by the people. In Acts 1, uh, they gather to an elected apostle. In Acts 6, the people choose seven deacons. Paul gives the church's qualifications for deacons and elders in 1 Timothy and Titus so that the people would know what kind of men to look for, what kind of men they should put forward as officers in the church. 
Just as men in Moses' day had a list of qualifications, so men in the New Testament have a list of qualifications. It's up to the people, though, to put forward who they want representing them and serving in these offices. So church government in the Presbyterian tradition comes from the ascent of the congregation. It is grassroots leadership. We nominate them, we elect them, we put them out there, and then once elected, we trust them to represent us and to exercise the authority that's granted them in the office. You've probably heard that the uh, form of government we have in the United States is based on the Presbyterian church government. I think there are many of the same principles in both, which we trust are biblical principles, that God works with us through representatives. And we don't have pure democracy in the church. We don't have pure democracy in, a, in American government. Um, so we elect representatives to go work for us. The last point I would make, number five, last thing, um, is that all peaceful and orderly government is grounded in faithful, consistent self-government. Self-control is, a, is a, a repeated subject in the Bible. Self-control comes up over and over and over. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Paul tells Titus to urge the younger men to be self-controlled. He tells Timothy that God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control, and that women should adorn themselves in respectable clothing with modesty and self-control. Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. Proverbs 25 says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. The primary essential form of government that we are all to be concerned with, more than any other form of government, the primary form of government we're to be concerned with is self-government, self-control. Self-government means ruling well over our mind, our mouth, our body, in a way that keeps us from sin and foolishness, a way that exercises ourselves toward godliness. We are dutiful stewards of all the resources God has given us. We soberly exercise authority over what God has given us, demonstrating a degree of skill and mastery over this life. And then growing in that, God gives us more responsibility. God gives us more things to rule over. You don't skip from sluggard to king just because you turn 18 or because you turn 21. It doesn't just flip a switch and all of a sudden, yeah, you were a sluggard yesterday and now you're a king. If you never learn to rule this square yard of your life, you will never rule anything else. You will never have any more responsibility that God gives you. Um, how can you rule others when you can't rule yourself? How can you, how can you govern others if you can't control yourself? So we all want our interface with the church's government not to be, I don't want to be a subject of discipline. I don't want to be a subject of correction. I don't want to be a problem. As, as I read just a few minutes ago from Hebrews 13, 7, we, we want to be a joy, not a grief. I want to be a support and an encouragement. And as the Lord continues to bless us, and he adds people to our numbers as he continues to do, I want you to be the rulers of tens and rulers of fifties and hundreds and thousands. But that first means getting our houses in order. That means getting our lives in order, exercising self-discipline, self-control, self-government so that we can lead others in godliness. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, thank you for equipping your church. We pray that you continue to raise up godly ministers and elders and deacons. We pray that you would give us your spirit every day so that we can exercise self-control and self-governance. Uh, Father, build us up and strengthen us in this way so that we become more and more like your son, Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.